0: The cleaner and the simpler your proposition is, the more likely it is to be remembered by both Microsoft and by customers. So once you've got that, I think you then need to have a very simple, friendly persistence, which is about how you continue to talk to people, how you continue to share the credentials and the referenceability that you're building up. I think it's continually demonstrating that you have the capabilities to hit the thing that they want to do.
1: And examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, plan B, how to scale your technology business faster, and achieve plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with Neil Marley. Neil is the CEO of Qualify. Qualify is a business which solves a problem which will be known to many professional services organizations, particularly those in the public cloud space. How do we find enough qualified people to deliver on the revenue opportunity that we see in front of us? And Neil came across that challenge, I guess, whilst he was running New Signature. So Neil and I have known each other since 2017 when I started working with New Signature. And during the course of our time working together, New Signature grew from about 10 people to about 350. And from a revenue perspective, that's probably a 48% compound annual growth rate. And what Neil and I are talking about today is how did New Signature become arguably Microsoft's preferred Azure partner in the UK? What challenges did this fantastic growth rate present to them? What did they learn along the way? And and some of the things which are sort of counterintuitive that we dive into, look, New Signature run Microsoft's UK partner of the year in 2014, and then another... They're the partner of the year again in 2019. And so it's rare that partners win the award twice. So they won it really early on when they had very few members of staff. And then they won it again when they were much bigger. And one of the things that always intrigued me about New Signature is their marketing, that certainly their website, outbound, inbound, really almost non-existent, almost depended entirely on Microsoft as a channel. And so if you are trying to build a business and, partner and channel are important to you. How do you build that? How do you line up your organization with a vendor to deliver 48% year over year growth? Along the way, Neil and the team faced a whole series of tasks and challenges. And so we talk about what some of those were, what some of the tools that they used and, and how they organized to overcome these challenges. Great conversation with Neil. Lovely to go back and talk about some of these problems that they had to overcome to achieve these staggeringly
0: good results. So enjoy. I'm Neil Marley, and I'm the Managing Director of Qualify. The Qualify has been formed out of the last 10 years of my life working in public cloud technologies with Microsoft. I ran a successful Microsoft partner, and the number one problem we had through that whole time was finding enough great people to service the growth that we are experiencing. So when New Signature, which is where I worked before, got acquired by Cognizant, and I worked there for a few years, I left last year to fix that problem for the world. There are so many companies out there and partners who are going through huge digital transformation exercises, and they're trying to understand either how they build or grow practices. Qualify has been set up to fix that problem. So we, provide advisory services, and we provide placement services for growing businesses. And we help them understand how to build a cloud practice, how to manage it, and how to fill it with great talent. And those talented people tend to be from our earlier stage career program, and they're called qualifiers, so we call them them. And that comes from the name Qualify, you may have seen that. And so we're really excited about how we can build this next wave of people into technology, particularly to cloud technology, because that's our area of expertise. And so we're working with organizations and working with people from all over UK at the moment, from every background, any educational experiences, we put them through a series of tests. If they're good enough to pass the test, they get on the program. Our experience working at a partner and all the things that we know about how to build a business and a practice, with the other problem, which is scaling it. How do you invest in future talent? How do you grow it?
1: Because I knew you were doing the talent thing, but I didn't realize you were doing advisory services around how to build a cloud practice.
0: Yeah, it's happened by accident in a way, as a lot of these things do. So you go into some meetings and you talk to some former competitors in some cases, people you worked in the Microsoft channel initially, and you talk to them about what you're doing, which is this talent program. And then you start asking them questions about what they're doing in their business. And you realize that there's some interesting things that you can help them with. So quite by accident, in a few partners, we've started talking to them about their go-to-market, their portfolio of services and optimization. We've talked to them about, should I treat every engagement as a custom project or how much scripting and, and automation should I include in my PS? And the answers go from zero to 100 on that, depending on who you talk to. There's a whole range of stuff. Some of the partners are saying, can you please build me a practice? I'd like a professional services practice in this technology. Can you just hire me a few senior people and fill it with doers and make it work, please? <laughs> At that level. So the as we developed the, the business idea and we spoke to more and more people, it became clear that actually the combination of those two things was really important. How do we assess what's going on in that organization and what they need? How do we offer advice in, from our experience? And how do we then connect that to the, Either you're not growing or you're growing and that's causing problems. They're the two things we see that people are stagnant and they shouldn't be in this market, or they're growing really fast, and so there's a whole bunch of issues that result from that. So they're the two things that we're combining now in, in our in our conversations with new prospects.
1: And when we were thinking about doing this podcast, what we were going to talk about, or we are going to talk about, and it's just interesting how it comes around full circle. Because I was thinking we were just talking before we started recording about the the scope of your journey. You've gone from about 10 people to 350 people. And you've grown about 50% year over year for <laughs> the time. Like coming into a business of 10 people, you know that sort of practice level, that sort of minimum size for a Microsoft practice, and then you've taken that on to 350 people over the last few years. You've learned a lot.
0: Yeah, and I think you don't always think that you have as you're going through it. I always think that there's so much more to learn, and I'm learning... I learned so much for that journey i realized that the next 10 years was a lot more to learn but when you look back there are some moments in time where you hit points when you work with us because we met obviously through that process helping new signature with its planning and facilitating training and coaching and so on you talked about the walls so the first wall and second wall and moving through these different points in time where you create a critical mass and then you push through a wall or climb a wall or you go with a hump whatever you want to call it you get to a new place and that Often, I think, came through critical mass through scale that allowed you to do other things. So, there's a number of steps on that journey. It's been very interesting. It's a little bit surreal when you look back on something like that because you're so involved in it every day. You don't often stop and look back at what you've done. You just see it every day just as 100 miles an hour. and You don't often have the time to stop and look back at what you've done. We had a couple of moments along that journey. We won a few awards that helped us. We won a few deals that moments in time where you can actually say, that's great. That, that recognizes a an amount of time and an amount of growth in many forms that we've had, that we've won this deal that we wouldn't have won three years ago, or we won this award for what we've done, which we wouldn't have won, to potentially for the same reason. So that was useful. But there've been a number, of, a number of learnings along the way.
1: Let's start before you got to .NET, because you were at Microsoft. And so you were at Microsoft. How long were you at Microsoft for?
0: I left in 2013. I joined in 2007, I think it was, about six years, I think. So a big chunk. But yeah, something like that. I did a couple of roles there. I joined as an industry lead in the manufacturing team, so talking to enterprise customers about Microsoft solutions in manufacturing and then I moved into account management Then I moved into the what was then called the incubation team which was a place that still exists in Microsoft it's got a different name fantastic team of people who existed to either incubate new technologies that Microsoft had developed or acquisitions that were still quite new and probably were not ready for our, the enterprise sales motion that Microsoft had so you'd bring them into the organization and you'd figure out how they work in Microsoft terms both technically and contractually and then you graduate them, if you like, into the enterprise. So Azure was new and it was very technical at that stage. I had quite a technical background, not so much now. And it was really interesting because I could see there was something quite seismic, size- not as it, it's much, it became much bigger than I imagined. I didn't have, have a huge amount of foresight there in that sense. So I went on the journey. I thought that looks interesting. And then you go, it became much bigger than I thought, but it was technically interesting. I could see it was different. I could see Amazon had moved into that space before. And they were ahead of Microsoft, I think, at that time, and because they'd launched earlier. And so I could see there was a road ahead. If Microsoft did the thing I normally do, which is to execute brilliantly, invest time and energy by it, it would be successful. So I finished up in Microsoft in 2013, and I was looking, not actively, around, just as you always do. And I had a call one day from Dan Scarf at Solutions, who was this partner of about 10 people saying, I've got an opportunity, let's go and speak to a customer, which we did. And on the way there, we had a chat about what what life could look like outside Microsoft. So that's how I moved into that partner role at .NET Solutions in 2013. And
1: I find often people who come from big companies like Microsoft or Dell or just big companies, really, there's an allure to going and joining a startup, 10 people on a mission to change the world. But often they're... They fail because they're not scrappy enough. Do you see yourself as scrappy?
0: I, I think I understand what you're saying and I've seen it too. I think as a it is a culture shock to some degree if you've come from Microsoft was in Tens Valley Park and had a huge office and the free fruit and the and all the all the soft drinks that you could possibly guzzle and wonderful facilities, huge meeting rooms and all the other things, and it was a very impressive organization to work at it still is it's actually in some ways even better now I think but the uh, coming from that and going into what was a relatively small office in Windsor behind a theater next to a car park was a shock there's no doubt about it I remember and the thing I held on to was that I had some fantastic people around me and I could see that they were really good quality individuals and they had great skills I could see that we had funding we had one of the big differences i think in those smaller organizations is the ability to scale through funding and not growing organically which i think is really difficult and really restricts some of the decisions you have to make so it allowed us to invest and grow and i think there's a certain there's a certain degree of intoxicant through that let's go and win a deal and if it doesn't happen if i don't do anything nothing happens so i enjoy i've always enjoyed the being with somebody a prospect talking to them about their business challenges and then getting an answer and then seeing that answer work inside their business and making a difference for them. And the technology that we had with Azure, the, the things we were talking about with some of the customers at that time was genuinely really interesting. And it made a difference in their business. And I could see after we closed our first deal and the first big deal in 2013, that was going to be something to be successful. And this large enterprise gave this small company a shop, And I thought that's really interesting. And it was because Azure was still relatively new. And I think there were that many partners out there. And we were very focused on being the best Azure partner we could be at that time. And so I think you you do need to have the attitude that says, I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna do things. It's not just about scrappiness in terms of commercial, scrappiness in terms of tidying the office and doing all the other things. We've talked a little bit before about this, being a good housekeeper, not walking past a mess. There's a degree of getting involved with everything that the business does and being a steward of all of that and making good decisions. I think that suits some people better than others. But if you haven't done it, I think it's wonderfully freeing because the other thing you end up with is the ability to make decisions. So Microsoft, as an example, is a really good company and it makes a lot of good decisions. And there's a bunch of processes inside it, like any big company. And so things can be a little bit slower than you would like. And I think any organization is like that. It feels potentially a little bit slower. When you get down to 10 people, And you're at a table and you say, should we do this and everyone nods, then the decision is made and you do it. And initially, that's quite scary. But after a while, that becomes extremely fulfilling because you know that as you see problems, you can answer the problem with a solution. You can all agree and you can execute. And if you can do that effectively, you can see meaningful change and growth really fast.
1: And that agility, I think, was part of your success package, if you like it. NewSig, because there were times when you are working at risk, which people like Microsoft don't work at risk, and some of the larger partners in the space don't do that either. If you had human beings available, you could start Monday.
0: Yes. I think you as calculated, obviously, you look at all the situations and say, what's the best outcome for everybody at this point? There are no rules, inverted commas, about that. I think as we got bigger, we became more cautious and more, I say more controlled, but certainly more rigorous in our approach, because you have to. You've got more things to consider as you get to be a bigger organization. And we did a lot less of that, for example. But there are other things as well that did persist, absolutely. So I think the ability for us to start quickly, the ability for us to respond quickly, reduce the latency in the processes in in the sales and show both enthusiasm and competence. I think if you do something really quickly, it means you've done it before quite a few times and that demonstrates competence. So if you're waiting for a proposal for two months, from either they're not very efficient or they don't know what they're doing. And so I think, as a, every touch point with prospects and then with customers. We tried really hard to do the best we could as quickly as we could and offered them an answer that would probably be faster than their internal answer. I think that was definitely true.
1: And so you won Partner of the Year in 2014, just after, just a year or so after you joined. And that was you were still a small business then. So how did you manage to
0: win Partner of the Year being so small? I, I think of the... If you look at what Microsoft looks at in, in the Nose Award, then generally the award is a pinnacle of many interactions through a fiscal year. They're looking for, like any organization is, the thing that they want. And the and that changes a little bit every year, but in terms of the engagement with a partner, or a customer, that's driving the stories and the approach and the outcomes that, that they're looking to drive for the whole of the UK or whichever geography it is you're talking about. And at that time there weren't that many enterprise stories with azure we, we had a great story with a customer who had moved their on-premise data center to azure we did a migration project with them and that was i think quite novel still let's call it that at that point in time so there was about was probably the lead story if you like and a bunch of other stuff underneath that we'd done in relation to slightly smaller engagements and projects which were either innovative or interesting and and showed the direction And showed other partners, I think, at Microsoft, where you could build a business with Azure. So I think they were holding that up as, look, this partner's come in, they've done this. Then I don't think they're against giving small partners partner of the year if they're demonstrating the right direction and the right sort of approach. They've done that a few times. And we were talismanic, I suppose. Here's what you could do. And as a result of that, I think a lot of partners who were maybe working in modern workplace or other cloud services started to look across at what Azure can offer them, and their customers as well, and what can offer their business. So I think now probably why. We won the award again in 2019, which is pretty, pretty unusual to win twice, and we won it again through so a higher order of impact then. So it wasn't going to be the same amount of work that would create that award-winning submission. We did a lot more with larger customers and some very specific and unusual use cases in some security cleared businesses and other things, which I definitely can't talk about. So yeah, I think it's that was probably some of the other stuff. We again, you just push the envelope a bit forward every time, and you you show what's possible, and that aligns where Microsoft's vision is going. I think that's important. As you look working with Microsoft, is quite it's quite like any other business relationship. It's what you want, what they want, and how you can construct an intersection of those.
1: Well, look, let's dive into that because one of the things that I think from that partner of the year in 2014, you managed to. Keep new signature, maybe as their microsoft's Microsoft as partner of choice for the UK. And so many of other partners have looked at you and gone jealous of that relationship, jealous of maybe the lead flow that generated for you. What did you do? What was the what was your secret?
0: Yeah, this is the point. It's gonna sound extremely simple in in a sense. There isn't if you like some secret magic formula here. It is like a lot of commercial relationships and partnerships. And it's but it's important to get all these bits right, I think. So If you don't do all of these things, that doesn't work as well. I think that's probably fair. So the first one is working out what your role is in Microsoft's future. Where are they going? What do they want to achieve this year? You can often ask anyone at Microsoft what their goals are. Be very explicit about what they're trying to do. And then be really clear about what what you're doing and what your role in that is and how what you're doing can help them and help you and help the customer. I think that is, what I've just said sounds really straightforward, but I think it's like a lot of these things when you look at what you're offering is, and what your differentiation is, we spend a, we spend a lot of time on that to make it really crystal clear. I think in a world like Microsoft or Amazon or Google or whatever, any big organization, any partner, and any interaction, any meeting, you have a very small window into that person's time. See, so you, you know that that old Steve Jobs grainy VHS video that talks about marketing. I love that video, and he says in there. Even a company like Apple has got a very small amount of time to tell you about what we do and what we're about. So it's a very interesting phenomenon. Everyone thinks that you're going to remember everything, but they remember very small amounts by what you talk about. So you have to really Crisp, and, you, and I think the cleaner and the simpler your proposition is, the more likely it is to be remembered by both. Microsoft and by customers. So once you've got that, I think you then need to have a very simple friendly persistence, which is about how you continue to talk to people, how you continue to share the credentials and the referenceability that you're building up. I think it's continually demonstrating that you have the capabilities to hit the thing that they want to do, which drives your economic engine. So in our case, it was we're the best partner of moving a customer to Azure because of our Go framework and our whole range of tool sets that we build to make it quick and easy and risk-free. So if you want a risk-free quick, good words, that's been done in these eight places and similar customers, that's a very compelling proposition. The other thing is the values that we have and the way that we work and the way that we fix problems when they come up. So no IT supplier, that professional services supplier is without the occasional project doesn't quite go as everyone would like. I think that's fair to say. And the important bit like all of these things situations is what you do then. And I think we spend a lot of time making situations at our own cost and fixing problems to make the solution work and then worry about the commercials a bit later. Because I think if you don't deliver on the promise, then that quickly becomes something which doesn't work in the partnership. You have to invest and you have to go all in and you have to make it all. You're in together to fix and deliver the outcomes for the three of you, the you, the partner, Microsoft, and the customer. So I think of it like that, not thinking of yourself as separable from those outcomes. I mean, there's a the degrees of sideways, but I think...
1: Out of 10, how many projects out of 10 go sideways?
0: very few i mean in my experience i mean in in that eight or nine year period probably less than five I, I, none of them resulted in a, a truly but awful situation they were they generally just took longer than they would have liked to get completed i think would be a summary we didn't i don't believe that we ever terminated mid-project or anything like that i don't think there's anything that ilk it was really often it's the classic expectation of what someone's going to get versus what turns up and or there's been a it has been an issue somewhere in the early plumbing, which has caused an issue later on, or some of the assumptions in the project plan are not bad. It's, it is nothing that people wouldn't have seen many times before. And so the end result, really, the remediation was more time, more cost to complete, really. There was very few situations, I think, are actually unsolvable in that sense. It just takes more time and energy.
1: Okay. So that helps breed trust with the Microsoft sellers, knowing that you've got a reputation for fixing if it goes sideways.
0: Yes, exactly. I think, and you're all you're in it together. I think that is that's a really important part of the the brand of the organization, regardless of Microsoft or others. If I look at that personally and say we are here to deliver a high quality outcome. And I still say that now in our business today. It's, you stand behind what you do, and you, you, if people aren't happy, then that's overwhelmingly your fault. Probably in a few cases, it may not be, you know, but overwhelmingly, I think you've not managed the expectation of what you're delivering or if there's been a quality issue somewhere within that. It's on us to then go back and make that right and learn from that and try and not repeat that mistake again.
1: And what, what else? What other things have you got around how do you end up being Microsoft's preferred partner? You said earlier when we were chatting, you didn't have... Channel manager? So alliance manager. So that's most partners would go, okay, we want a partnership with Microsoft. First thing we're gonna do is got to hire a partner manager,
0: a channel manager, an alliance manager, but New City didn't have one at all. No, we kept meaning to. What we did was we we realized that every time we went to look at it, I'd seen other partners in my time at Microsoft use that role effectively. And what we ended up doing, which I think was really good, was hiring people in sales and pre-sales roles, commercial roles, who knew a lot about Microsoft and knew a lot about the journey that they were going to take prospects and customers on. And so the formation of the partnership wasn't centralized, it was decentralized. So they, rather than their big rights manager in the middle, there were a lot of mini partnerships that were, Now, for me, that's much more effective. Because if you have a Dave and a person, Janet, and they're working together, one from the vendor and one from the partner, and they trust each other, and that relationship grows and builds into many opportunities, then. You can reference that in the wider microsoft in this case and you can also share that success story with other sales people around in different industries and different sectors in that in that organization and that's really what alliance management is about it's about connecting people with positive referenceability i think if you looked at it and you would say one of the, the roles is to do that one thing we didn't have which we did programmatically was the there was a, there were two things there was they were making sure we had certifications and all the necessary boxes ticked in our program to make sure that we were set against some of the Microsoft program requirements and operationally reporting some of our data to Microsoft as well. So we did that through operations rather than through an Alliance function. That's something like reporting pipeline and talking about opportunities and so on programmatically was something that other Alliance functions did. So we took those two bits out and put them into another place because they were relatively programmatic. You could run a report from CRM and give people an outcome. So it wasn't necessary to be any Alliance function.
1: Is the focus that you gave it part of its success? Because it, if you were to sit down in a, with a blank sheet of paper, I would typically say marketing might be on the hook for a third. So we're going to build a website. We're going to build some content. We might do some outbound calling. Partners, we might be looking for a third of the lead flow from them. And salespeople might be able to generate a third of it themselves. It's certainly been my experience before. In your case, th- though, the website was awful most of the time. Most people would look at it and go, it's awful, we should fix it. And then it's like, but we haven't got time, let's just keep going. Marketing team was pretty small and did some events and did some co-marketing with Microsoft, but didn't generate, you didn't generate your own campaign. I mean, you you wrote a book about, company wrote a book about digital transformation, but you weren't doing lots of outbound, you weren't doing lots of inbound. I mean, that was almost missing completely. It was Microsoft and Microsoft.
0: It was. And I think there are two main channels, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't. I thought majority would be the percentage for my would be Microsoft led through the really skilled relationship sales builders we had who would go in, have conversations, identify that need, and talk about how all the things we did. Which I mean, had some great quality products and services and delivery people. Delivery team, the delivery teams, both in managed services and professional services, in our organization were, I think, always overlooked in how how powerful they were as a sales engine. If they do a brilliant job, it becomes much easier to then reference those projects. So if you put that together, you have, you're absolutely right. You have a proactive sales force talking to Microsoft a lot. And and then you also have in the minority side of it, you have a bit of inbound through network, but you have some partner relationships. We work with some partners in different modes, some in the reseller community and others, industry experts who would be placed to have conversations about our capabilities with others and so on, and we'd have. We had, but that was a minority piece. It was what I call the general morass of business networking in life. You'd have you have various various Mm varying degrees of success with that. I certainly wouldn't rely on it as a mechanism in a business. The one that was reliable was the ability to go and manage our destiny, talking with Microsoft. And it, we also talked not just with the field teams in Microsoft, the sellers and the pre-sellers equivalents in there, but also the corporate teams as well looking at we were part of a few partner advisory councils so we could talk with them about what was where Microsoft were going what was going to happen and we also had relationships inside the UK and Europe as well which we we had as part of our position as a a partner of some influence and how we could continue to develop our proposition and and understand more and more about where Microsoft was going so we could do a better job of aligning our services i think that was also important but yeah you're right we didn't do we had one or two people ultimately i think in marketing we did more account-based marketing and more nurturing on some of our organizations that had fallen off or never got started but that the primary engine was microsoft
1: if you started with azure where did you end up what what were the other bits of the jigsaw that you
0: were delivering growth on we started with azure and then we went the beginning the genesis of the company of was actually software development so that app dev was the, the very first thing and then the zero was the second thing then we went to office 365 which became microsoft 365 so the whole you know office sharepoint and so on all of that technology and workplace suite and then we added data which grew really fast and continue i think continue to grow in, in its new form in cognizant now i think it's a really exciting area with slash ai which was developing And then we also extended in the last couple of years into Microsoft Dynamics business applications, particularly the Power Platform. So we started to broaden it, but we did that somewhat cautiously. We were very concerned about making sure the quality of our delivery was excellent. We had the right leaders in the delivery teams to oversee and govern something new we were doing. So I think we were cautious about that. And we looked for really good opportunities with new customers to develop together with those propositions as well. So the first time we did something, we invested a huge amount of energy and time in making it work. And I could, I think that was definitely true about the some of the exchange work we did back in the day, Microsoft Office 365, migrations, and then the data practice. We got our first few data customers and we worked hard on making it brilliant. And we learned a lot from doing that. So we added capability as we went through the journey.
1: And so you, we were saying earlier, you went from 10 people to 350 people over that
0: yeah, in the UK, the the, the the globe by that point, .NET had been bought by an American organization called New Signature. So there are about the same number of people in North America as well. So about 700 overall at the end, I think.
1: Which is 48% compound annual growth rate, which is you know staggering to carry that through. 10 people to 350 people is magic. If you look back, is there something you wish you'd done sooner, like on that journey where there's some speed bumps and you go, oh,
0: if only we'd had... I think the probably... It's easy. It's super easy with hindsight as in what transpired in the business and then looking back at the decisions you've made that may have not been optimal at that time. But I think if you are going to apply the le- lessons learned to something else, I think it was a very successful outcome. I think it was good. I probably would have been bolder some of the investments in areas that we really thought were going to be big. I think that slight cautiousness I talked about didn't feel like it at the time, but I think we probably could have gone harder and faster with more Raise more money and invested in the areas we really believe are going to be successful. So probably when we got through the Azure, that was our first piece. And looking at what we were doing next, we the data thing grew really fast. But I think it could have grown a lot faster if we'd put more money and investment into it. Yeah, I think. So I think that's probably it's easier to hindsight to go that was an obvious decision. But if you're going to go for something, go for it. So it's easy to look back and say that was an obvious thing to do. Now I think. The other thing that I would probably do is variously through the journey, as you grow from 10 to 350 people, the characters involved, their roles change, and I think we worked through a bunch of that, and a lot of people found really good roles in the rejigged organization as it goes from 10 people to 50 as a big change, I think, and it goes through into three figures. And some of the roles become, if you're wearing three hats, and suddenly that's not doable anymore, you have to wear one hat and have three people doing that, those three jobs. And so that requires change. I think the, and it's not always easy because change isn't always easy. People have done nothing other than be themselves and been successful and the company is growing and suddenly there's a change which is required. I think I would have been much more open about that now I know about it at the beginning. I would start the journey off by saying, look, everyone's job is going to change regularly <laughs> because the expectation of that would have been easier to manage.
1: I think they're, in some ways, they are the bittersweet hardest to manage things is given their all for the company and do wearing three hats they were great not now those three hats need to be done at a higher level or better and it's a real it's a real challenge for people to give up two of the jobs and particularly if when you find that actually they can't do any one of the three at the level we need and but they've been They're a fixture. They're great on the team. And then can they find a new spot in the new structure? You know, can we make it happen for them? Will their ego let them?
0: Yeah. And I think some of the lessons I've taken from this journey relate to some of these points. If I look at what I've really experienced, I think. One of the things is that I think I would be a lot more open and a lot more direct than I was in the last three years versus the first three years, I became a lot more direct. Not unpleasant, I hope, but not disrespectful and not horrible. But certainly, the conversation you're going to have that you need to have is not going to age well. <laughs> so it's better to have that. We did that speaking with you. With Munkhouse and Company, when you came in and did some stuff, we talked about radical candor and we, you know, have those conversations because it's not easy just to sit in a room and have a conversation. It's really important to have a structure. It's important to have also the license in the culture to have those conversations. So I think we did that quite early on, but it's not a natural thing for humans to have difficult conversations. It's most people try not to have them. So I think that's. Probably one of the things that I've learned is it's okay, and people genuinely, after a period of quiet reflection, they they do appreciate being told the truth. And they they certainly don't appreciate if you're having conversations for a few weeks behind their back about what might be going on. I think that's not a good answer. So the alternative is a much better approach. I think the other thing is it's really great to get third party observation and help. So like a lot of sports stars have coaches and even though they're at the top of their game, they have coaches. So I, I think having someone who's knowledgeable and knows about your area, if you like, but can offer a perspective on what they see, I think is really powerful because you can't see what you're doing all the time. So I look back at some of the things I've done in the past. and suppress press a yelp of horror as I look at someone pointing out to me what I've done. Sometimes you don't see it in yourself and you have to you have to have someone that you trust offer you a perspective on what's happened. So I think having the ability to listen, take feedback, get other people involved in your organization, like a coaching company or a mentor and others to, to watch and be part of your organization and, and offer feedback is really powerful. So I've definitely learned that. And I think The other thing is just getting out all of the ingression and tension out on the table. Because most organizations are made up of humans, and humans have got agendas, and there's a lot of odd thoughts in all of us. And often we don't share a lot of those things for the reason we just talked about, people that don't like having arguments. I remember when we had one session, Dom, years ago, we talked about meetings. And I think that particular session went on longer than you've ever seen in any organization. do so we run a meeting? And you think it's really easy, don't you? Everyone agrees how you should run a meeting. You should do it like this. It turns out the 12 of us did not agree how to run a meeting. I think in
1: my mind, it's like it took two days to agree. I bet it only took a day, but it felt like a
0: long time. We had, do you have to be on time, yes or no? Which is interesting. Do you, Can I read my laptop while I'm listening to the meeting? And some people thought, this is entirely fine. Some people didn't. I was at variance with people at across a various spectrum of areas. And we sat down, but all we did was, it sounds a bit like you're having an argument. What you're doing is you're removing a whole bunch of future tension from your work environment because you've discussed, agreed, and signed up to the charter. And then when someone breaks that charter, it's explicit and obvious, not implicit and annoying, so you can call them out. So I think giving your organization the ability to talk directly to itself is really important. I think you can't just have one person running around the place saying what they think. Everyone has to be engaged in that culture.
1: I am always staggered by the difference of opinion. I turn up, we all have our own bias, but I'm always amazed when you have the space, what the difference of opinion is. And there's always somebody who says something and people pause for breath and look at them I, in horror or disgust or something because somebody's just said something that you just didn't think that
0: was an opinion that they would hold no and you know, it's always surprising and it's kind of, it's and some of, some opinions are more valid than others but there, there is a I think the point is you reach a consensus on what a meeting looks like you agree a consensus on how you can give feedback to people using these different frameworks and it's okay because the organization culturally thinks this is the right thing to do we're going to agree that we're going to start meetings with good news we still do that in qualifier today because that's something we did in new signature. And it sets a tone for the meeting. It's simple and easy. Let's start with some good news. Some days that was a bit more difficult than others. There's little rituals. And I think if you can embed them in the way that you operate and you give people the freedom to get involved and make a difference, impact what's going on, they can see that when they are engaged in that, things do change in a direction that's tremendously empowering. So I think there's some of the things I think we did well. And I think I probably would just implement those sooner have more confidence in those i have more confidence in them now i've seen them work and i know i think i know how important those things are for culture that can that can grow and be self critical
1: we mentioned radical candor by kim scott what other books do you think people should pick up and read along the way
0: I, I've, the number one book that I read, that, there's a few books I've read that I think that made a difference to me, and I hope they made make a difference to other people, but, and they're both very well known, I think. The first one was What Got You Here Won't Get You There, and I think that's the reason that book was so interesting is that I'd spent a lot of my career focused on the what the what I knew and my abilities and so on, and that was what was needed as I went up an organization and became a manager at um and it was so unbelievably wrong. I was listening to you and Scott on the other week, didn't you? See, I was, he was talking about one of the things about humility of a CEO means that you have to make the team succeed. It's not about you. It's not about being the smartest person in the room. It's not about it. It's about creating conditions for the team to be successful. And that book talks a lot about those sorts of things. If you haven't read it, it there's a number of traits slash habits. There's about 20, I think, or so. And you read the book and you go, yeah, I got number one, number four, <laughs> number seven. In my case, yeah, the numbers, and I was like, "Oh my word!" And there's a way of writing about those traits which makes you identify them in yourself, recognise what they're doing, and how they're potentially hurting what you're trying to achieve. And in some cases, what you think is helping is doing the opposite of that. And that was a very transformational book for me because it it moved my mindset from the I, the ego, about what I'm doing to the impact that I'm having on others and how I could be more effective by amplifying through others and working with a team and creating conditions for them to be successful, which was probably my biggest one of my biggest learnings going through this journey from sales leader to ultimately running the new signature business was, it's about how I can help people be successful. And I think without that book, I think it would have been a much more difficult journey. It really worked for me in terms of very explicitly targeting the things I was doing But weren't great. They weren't awful, right? I mean, (laughs) but they were just they were not optimal. So that's number one. And the other one, the other book that I I really I read earlier in my life, which I still go back to, is Awaken the Giant Within by by Anthony Robbins. And what I love about that book, it's a big book, but what I love about it is the the emphasis on you have control of what you're doing. And you can always form a really good question in any situation. So that book talks a lot about how you take control of your actions and your emotions and your response to situations and the key to part the part of the key to that is asking yourselves the right question at that moment in time how do i turn this situation to my advantage how do i it's a positive questioning in in a situation where it may not feel like positive question is due i think that's really important so there's that book help with that and i think there's a lot of other things in there about the ability for you to be whatever you want to be crudely you can be more than you think you are and you can go on a journey what do you really want to do and how do you so that's all. awaken the jive within thing is how you can be powerful how you can go and follow your dreams i read that was my early 20s it was a very it was a very powerful book and it really spoke to me so there are two i think that i recommend people but certainly the second one if you're not sure to do with your life or your career read the second one and if you're in a career and you're heading through particularly a moment of change and you're particularly going from an individual contributor role to a manager or leadership role. That's a really good book to read.
1: Fab. Neil, it's been an absolute pleasure cantering through .net, new signature, and intercognizant with you. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There, you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks and I will see you next week.